Hey friends, it's John Odom. Today is Sunday, October the 4th, and our teaching text comes from Ephesians chapter 2. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed to us in his kindness through Jesus Christ. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Holy Spirit, would you illuminate for us the words of Scripture? that we might follow Jesus more closely and love him and know him more intimately to the glory of the Father. Amen. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bonds which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This, of course, are the opening words to the Declaration of Independence. And they've gone down in the annals of history as some of the most consequential words ever written. They reflect the intent and the act of the original 13 British colonies to sever ties with the crown and forge for themselves a new nation. Perhaps in ways uh, even deeper than we realize, Our nation's origins and ethos have worked their way into the way that we see the world as Americans. The founders of the country in which we live threw off the yoke of tyranny and they assumed their own right and responsibility to form a new government. In this original act, the story of how we became a nation infused into the American identity and practice a sense that what we most need, we take for ourselves. If we need it, we're going to figure it out on our own. We don't need a king to okay our plan. We don't ask for permission before taking bold action. We don't look to some kind of higher power to to give us a divine A-OK before we do what we want. We just hop in with two feet and take what's ours. That's the American way of living. It's why Americans love the idea of the American dream. That no ma- the idea is that no matter what family you were born into, with hard work, you can make it big for yourself, make a name for yourself. We love stories of independent uh, performers, you know, Rudy, 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 Uh, even like Legally Blonde, uh, movies like Braveheart, people who see something they want and with a lot of hard work and grit, they go after it and take it for themselves. We celebrate these stories in our country. 
It's why Americans celebrate stories of entrepreneurs or even like uh, people who advocate for justice, people who see a problem or see an opportunity and with their own cunning and hard work, they figure out how to, how to fix it or how to take care of it uh, by themselves. The core of the American ethos is that what we need or what we want, we get for ourselves. And for good and for bad, we practice, we practice solidarity with Israel in Judges chapter 17. In those days, they had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. And I bring all of this up to, to raise this point. It's important to recognize how our home turf has shaped us because it unquestionably influences how we read the scriptures and how we interpret the gospel in our context and in our age. It affects how we can hear and see and receive God as God has revealed God's self to us. And it affects how we receive and hear passages like this one that we've just read from Ephesians chapter 2, one of the most memorable passages in the entire New Testament. The central assumption of Paul here in Ephesians chapter 2 in describing humanity is that apart from God's intervention, we are hopeless, we are helpless. In verses 1 through 3, he describes the universal state of humanity. He says we are dead in our sins. Dead people usually can't do a lot to help themselves. It says we're subjected to the ruler of the air. We're addicted to our sinful cravings and by default deserving of wrath. And this is a rearticulation of stuff that Paul has said elsewhere. We see it in Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, Paul says here, all of us were in this helpless state. It sounds a lot like Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. All of us were in this hopeless state, dead in our sins and deserving of wrath. Paul is affirming things that we've heard elsewhere from him. Now, right off the bat, we take issue with Paul as Americans. We would say on the one hand, like, hey, who are you to say that I'm deserving of wrath? Like, I'm on kind of my own journey here. You stick with your own business. But like, who are you to say anything about me? And we say, like, who are you to say that I'm dead in my sins and I can't help myself? Watch me help myself, Paul. That's how that Americans implicitly respond to these kind of descriptions about us. As Americans, we implicitly reject higher power arguments if and when we feel like they limit or threaten our independence. You know, in our founding, we rejected the notion of monarchy, a king who would rule over us, who inherited his power by birth, who would legislate his perspective as if by divine fiat. But this is where we have to recognize uh, the limits and the misleading nature of our upbringing. Because in believing that democracy is universally good, we also tend to believe that having a king, having one who rules over us, is inherently bad. This is why uh, educational philosopher Andrew Pudawa says we need to read fairy tales, because they can at times remind us that kings can be good. We love the notion of autonomous rule, of self-rule, of rejecting royal oppressors. But we also know implicitly that we aren't truly capable of ruling ourselves well and ruling ourselves into flourishing. And I could ask you just a couple of questions to see how you're doing ruling yourself. How's it going controlling your tongue? How's that going in an election season? 
How's it going restraining your impulses to look at stuff you shouldn't look at on the internet or on television? How's it going avoiding gluttony or getting drunk? Uh, how's it going eliminating hatred or being judgmental, having judgmental thoughts about other people in your heart? You know, if, if we were truly capable of ruling ourselves well, of autonomous self-rule, if humanity were capable, capable of like true moral evolution, getting better on our own over time, man, how on earth can we understand and explain the unprecedented violence in the 20th century? And how can we explain and understand the racial violence and sexual deprivation and the relational polarization of the first two decades of the 21st century? Like it or not, doesn't Paul's argument that humanity is by default on a self-destructive course, uh, the, the argument that carries the most explanatory power? He says we were dead in our sins. We were subjective to the influence of an evil power. We were following destructive desires and deserving of wrath. And this tees up the, the central problem of humanity. We were made in the image of God. And we catch glimpses of this like divine image-bearing potential at times in our lives. But yet, that design... That image-bearing capacity is perennially frustrated. We're on a course for our own undoing, and we clearly can't self-help our way into wholeness. We need a fresh start. We also need to be given the ability to make the most of that fresh start. Now, to this point in verses 1 through 3, it's been pretty much bad news. And then we get to verse 4 where it says, But because of his great love for us. And Paul leads up to this transition, this but into the good news by, by explaining the motivation of God in intervening here. God is not swooping in to exploit our vulnerability. God's not seizing a chance to put us in a position where we're going to owe him big. The thing that prompts divine intervention in humanity's crisis is God's love, his affection for the, the people that he made. And then I want you to watch the movement uh, from verses 5 through 7 here. It says, God made us beneficiaries of his rich mercy, even though we were undeserving. It says that God made us alive, even while we were dead in our sins. It says that God raised us up with Christ from a position of squalor to a position of honor. And then it says he seated us with Christ from a posture of helplessness to a posture of privilege. And to what end, what was the goal of all of this? The end of verse 7 says this. It says, To show in the coming ages the riches of his grace and kindness to us in Jesus Christ. It's like the story of the prodigal. You remember the prodigal in Luke chapter 15? The prodigal comes walking home, practicing his I'm sorry speech, and the father runs after him and welcomes him, puts a robe on him and a ring on his finger and hugs him and throws a party for him. Paul says it's kind of like this is what happens when a person comes to faith in Jesus. They come back to the family of the father. But then expanding the story, it's like the father turns his redeemed prodigal around facing the road from which he came and says, watch, I'm going to show you this grace I want to show to all the other prodigals who are making their way home to me. And then we're hit with verse 8 and this phrase that so gripped me in studying the passage this week. 
You'll recognize the first part. It's by grace you've been saved through faith, but then concentrate on this. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's on this latter phrase that we need to unburden ourselves from indoctrination to democracy, which disciples us into believing that everything good that we have in our lives, we either have to make or take for ourselves. But as Paul has has shown us in the beginning of chapter 2, dead in our sins, we cannot resurrect ourselves. Entrapped by the enemy, we cannot rescue ourselves. Enslaved to our misguided affections, we cannot liberate ourselves, but because of his great love for us, our good and kind king pronounces our pardon. Paul says this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. The origins of this plan do not lie with you. You see, our salvation, our hope, our help in this life, the remedy uh, for the problem of humanity's self-destruction comes from without, not from within. The thing that we most need is not inside of us. The thing that we most need we cannot take or make for ourselves. It is a gift of God to be received by faith and on his terms. The gospel or, or, or the good news of everything that God has done for us in Jesus is is something that won many of our hearts at one time or another. He paid our debt. He canceled our sin. He shouldered our burden. But over time and in a deceptive twist, so many of us, uh, myself included, drift into believing that the burden comes back to rest on our shoulders. And you can call it stewardship, you can call it responsibility, but no matter what you call it, you can't call it the gospel if it ever morphs into being not a gift and something that you have to do or earn for yourself. From infancy to maturity in Christ, salvation never stops being God's project, God's gift. We are and we remain forever his handiwork, his masterpiece his work that he's undertaking. And God has more invested in in loving and leading us into wholeness than we ever will. He gives us all of this as his gift, and the gift he gives us is his grace. Now, we sing about grace, we talk about grace. Grace is kind of like in the lingo of church folks, but When we talk about grace or sing about grace, I want you to appreciate a more robust definition of what grace really is. Grace is not merely pardon, though it's certainly not less than pardon. People talk about grace as like God's undeserved kindness or unmerited kindness toward us. It is that. Grace is pardon, but it's also empowerment. It's an animating and activating force in our lives. And these two definitions taken together of empowerment and pardon tells us every time we think grace, we should be thinking about empowering pardon, forgiveness, and also force or capacity to live as forgiven people. And this grace, this empowering pardon, is his gift 
not one that we could muster up for ourselves, something that comes to us from the outside as a gift from our loving Father. Now, there's several wrong ways to respond to any gift or to this gift. The first wrong way to respond to to this gift is pride. Pride says, look, I don't need that. I'm good on my own. I don't need help from anybody. Kind of insulted at the idea. Another wrong way to respond to this gift is, is apology. It's like, oh, you shouldn't have gone to the trouble of doing that for me. I don't, I, don't, I don't deserve this. It feels a little bit like humility, but it's still refusing the gift. A third wrong way to respond is defensiveness, which is like, what's wrong with you? Like, why would you think that I even need that? You're not perfect either. All of these are wrong ways to respond to the gift. How are we meant to respond to this gift and to great gifts? Well, it's gratitude and acceptance. Gratitude and acceptance. When I was 17 years old, my older brother uh, gave me his old pickup truck. It was a 1989 single cab, short bed, a stick shift Chevy Scottsdale. It was maroon and silver. It originally had a CB in it. Those of you who are under 30 are going to have to go Google what a CB is, and then you're still not going to understand. It was this fantastic truck. And when my, brother, when my brother gave me the truck, I want you to imagine what would it have been like if I'd had a response that like sounded like pride or apology or defensiveness. If I'd said, well, look, hey, I'm not your charity case. Or what if I'd like rejected the gift thinking, oh, I'm not worthy of such a generous gesture. Or if I'd insulted his generosity, generosity based saying, look, I don't need a vehicle. What makes you think I would need that? And I really did need wheels, a way to get around town. All of these responses, which end up with me not having the gift because of my arrogance, uh, would just be a huge waste. Declining transportation when it's handing, handed it to me on, on a platter. It would be better, but also wasteful if I'd expressed genuine gratitude for the gift, but then just left it parked in the driveway. What was I meant to do with such generosity? Well, hop in the truck and drive, of course supposed to make the most of what was given to me. You say thank you, yes, and then you go and you put some miles on the odometer or the odometer, as we call it, in my family. And similarly, what are we meant to do in response to the generosity of God given to us in Jesus? Well, it's to live as free people, to say thank you and to live as forgiven people, to live as loved people to say thank you, to express gratitude, and to run with everything he's given us, to embrace his empowering pardon, this gift that we could not give ourselves, to live in light of what he's done for us, the pronouncement that he's made over us. This comes from a church father named Origen. He said, listen, what Paul is saying then is this. If you believe that Christ is risen from the dead, Believe also that you too have risen with him. If you believe that he sits at the Father's right hand in heaven, believe that your place of belonging is right next to him. Every good thing that's happened in Jesus, how Jesus now reigns at the right hand of the Father, we've been welcomed into. Paul says that we were raised from the death in our sins. We were, we were raised next to a position of honor with him. We've been given this empowering pardon. 
as if who we will be in the future has come rushing into the present and we've been given a foretaste of it. Therefore, live like it and live in light of it. Some of you have heard me tell the story of my uh, seminary professor, Bob Stamps, Brother Bob, as he was known by some uh, in ancient days at Oral Roberts University. Uh, Brother Bob at a time was a pastor in Virginia and was out to dinner with his wife and this other couple in the church. The guy happened to be a general in the military and they're, they're sitting in this restaurant not far from the White House and Brother Bob and the general are sitting there visiting and the general looks around and he says, hey, you want to do something cool? He's like, sure. And so Brother Bob follows this general out the back door of the restaurant follows them across the courtyard and they're coming up on the gate to the White House. As they approach the gate, the general shows his credentials and the person working security says, good evening, general. And Brother Bob and the general walk into the gate of the White House together. As they approach the building, the door opens and seeing the credentials, Secret Service opens the door and says, good evening, general. They go through one level of security after another. Uh, Brother Bob is finding himself chasing this general on foot uh, into the west wing of the White House. Everywhere they go, Secret Service are saying, good evening, General, good evening, General, good evening, General. And finally, Brother Bob and the General find themselves standing in the Oval Office. Of course, it was unoccupied at the time. But Brother Bob, this like pastor, this just dude, is finding himself in the, in the, the office of one of the most powerful positions in all of the world, the White House. He's invited into this place where he doesn't belong based on the credentials of the person he's with who's saying, this guy's with me, this guy's with me. And similarly in Jesus, through no like good merit or like winning smile of our own, we've been welcomed into places that we don't deserve. And the truth is we don't deserve it. As Paul said, because of his great love and affection for us, he has given us this gift, given us access to places where we don't belong, given us opportunity, given us capacity that we didn't have on our own. Because of his empowering pardon, his grace, his love, he's resurrected us. He's given us a fresh heartbeat. Jesus says in in the Gospel of John, you did not choose me, but I chose you. We, we are in a church of, full of high-capacity people, of educated people who are inclined to taking care of things for themselves. I want to remind you today that this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. What do you do in response to such a gift? You receive it with gratitude. You remain with the giver and you rejoice and you run with with the gifts that he's been given. I wonder today, for for all of you who are listening, those of you who may be watching today, to what degree are you aware of the gift that God has given you in the person of Jesus Christ? And to what degree are you living in light of this gift? Are you responding to it with pride or with defensiveness? Look, look, I don't need your help. I'm fine on my own. Are you responding with a kind of false humility as if to say, oh, that's not for me, but you're like in your own way asserting your own ability to say like, I don't get that, I don't deserve that. How presumptuous of you. No, the response for each of us is to, with gratitude, accept what's been given. We never graduate from the gospel. 
We never move on to a place of maturity where we don't need the work that he's given us through the Holy Spirit, the grace given us in Jesus. We receive it with gratitude and we say, thanks. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you've given us. Thank you for what you've done for us on the cross. I pray that you would liberate us from the tyranny of thinking that we are ultimately in control of our lives. I pray that you would liberate us from the burden of having to forever make a name for ourselves and fix all of our problems. We just confess, like there are problems that we face individually and we face as the human race that are greater than our ability to solve. We are, apart from you, we are dead in our transgressions and sins. We are enslaved to the ruler of the air. We are addicted to destructive desires. And Lord, like there's nothing we can do on our own. We just, with open hands, Lord, we just, we want to receive whatever you want to give. For the new believer and for the, the redwood, the person who's walked with you for a long time, like, Lord, we want to be forever in a posture of receptivity and openness to the gifts that you give, dependent on the gifts that you give. Free us from the deceptive lies about stewardship and responsibility, like the way that those messages are twisted into making a new and false gospel and thinking that we have to bear this burden ourselves. Help us to be humbly dependent and perennially grateful for what you've given. This is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Help us, Lord Jesus. Encourage us, us, Lord Jesus. We love you and we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.